is there an original sin of the way that the internet works? And if you believe that, what might it be? It's a fabulous question. I think we trusted too much. I think there's been an attitude for a long time that if it's legal, that it's okay. And instead of uh, looking at what's moral and ethical. And so there, there was a lot of uh, kind of, are you saying I can't do that or that I shouldn't do that? And if it's I shouldn't, then they sometimes they would go ahead and do it anyways if it was what they needed to do to make money. Our concepts of privacy need to be updated. But I also think that had we passed our, our gosh darn law in 2000, even an, a flawed one, we'd be better off than we are today. Gosh darn laws are my favorite yeah. kind of laws, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Debugger, a podcast about technology and democracy, brought to you by Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy and the Keenan Institute for Ethics. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. Was there an original sin built into the internet at its creation? I'm exploring that question in this first episode. It's such a thick topic, we've cut it into two parts. This is part two. If you haven't heard part one, you should really go back and do that now. The internet has given us so many wonders. Instant connection with old friends halfway around the world. Life-saving long-distance surgeries. Cat memes. But it's also given us Cambridge Analytica and COVID disinformation and more people who think the earth is flat and less people who trust, well, almost anything. Certainly democracy. We're going to talk about how to fix that, but first... I think it's important to go back in time and understand where the mistakes were made. Kind of like long division, where you have to work backwards and find your mistake and then work forwards again. So I'm talking to people who were there at the beginning to see what they think went wrong, to find out what their most teeth-clenching, shoulda, coulda, woulda, I told you so moments were, and are. Jessica Rich is the perfect person for this conversation. She was at the Federal Trade Commission when it created its Privacy Enforcement Group. She eventually rose to lead the agency's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Along the way, she's tangled with all the big tech firms in and out of court. Apple, AT&T, Uber, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. But back in the 1990s, she was a new FTC lawyer and quickly alighted to the idea that privacy was going to be a big deal. She spent most of her life trying to convince other people that privacy is a big deal. I started by asking her about all the companies that vacuum up all that information whenever you open a smartphone or look at a web page, and the entire industry that grew up around that, leading to all these situations we have today. It all happened while she was running around regulating and suing many of the major firms doing those very things. So as a consumer, when you, you know, log in to read the news and you look at a simple web page, uh, you have no idea how many companies that you're dealing with. How did we ever arrive at that situation? Well, we arrived at it because there were no rules to stop it. And uh, it was a great way for companies who had no relationship with consumers to grab hold of all their information anyway. So uh, very early on, we saw that hundreds of companies were collecting information at one single website. And for the most part, it has been the position of all of those companies that in order to, uh, for consumers to exercise any control of it, they have to go 
opt out one by one, but they don't even know about most of those companies. So this is something that happened because there was no law preventing it. And that wasn't for lack of trying. Way back at the beginning of internet time, it was decided that Rich's agency, the FTC, would basically be in charge of privacy issues. But the tools Jessica Rich had were pretty clunky for dealing with them. Remember Richard Purcell from Part 1 when he described the mistake of borrowing old business models from TV and radio for the web? Well, we made the mistake of borrowing old laws and trying to apply them to the web too, instead of coming up with new rules that would apply to this new world. Is there an original sin of the internet, how it works, how it was designed? And and if there is, what do you think it is? Well, I know there are tech answers to that question that are definitely beyond my experience. Um, But my focus is consumer protection, law, and policy. So my mind immediately goes to how different things would be if we passed a privacy law early on. The debate about whether to pass a privacy law started in the mid-90s, right after the internet exploded on the scene. The privacy issues were obvious from the start. Data was being collected in new ways, instantaneously, invisibly. You didn't know who was on the other end. Your kids could be giving information. Many issues were identified early on. The FTC made the first of many legislative proposals to Congress in 2000 and proposed some basic principles to govern data collection. And these principles, many of them remain at the heart of laws and proposals that are still being discussed today. And I believe the world would be very, very different if a law was passed back in 2000. We'd have rules that everyone would be able to count on, both consumers and businesses. We wouldn't have the chaos, the confusion, the Wild West we have today. The tech platforms would look very different. Ad networks, data brokers, they wouldn't wield the enormous influence in the marketplace they have today. There would be fewer data breaches and abuses, more transparency and accountability. And if the FTC, which was the agency that uh, would have been given this authority, had been given rulemaking authority as was proposed, the law would have been able to evolve with technological changes. So to the extent it wasn't perfect at the time, it could have grown with technology. So for me, that's the original sin from a policy perspective. I asked her to imagine how the world might be different today had we passed a law 20 years ago. What kind of things spring to mind? Oh, lots of things spring to mind. So I think the tech platforms, which have built their empires on unfettered collection and use of data, would be likely be much smaller and much less powerful in the marketplace. And of course, that's one of the big issues we're debating today, what to do about these ginormous uh, tech platforms. I think data brokers and ad networks uh, wouldn't have grown the way they have either because consumers would have been able to cut off sharing of data with them. Is there one incident um, that when you think about, uh, you know, whether you were at the FTC or later, uh, or you just like, God, why did this, this, this shouldn't have happened? We absolutely could have stopped this. Well, Cambridge Analytica, that was, as described by many, a use of information contrary to the settings and choices and preferences that consumers had expressed. And that kind of abuse would have been illegal under the 2000 privacy law that was proposed. Okay, so maybe I told you so's aren't often useful. But it could have been, can be. 
I think in this case, they show how inaction has been bad for consumers, bad for technology, and bad for democracy. Ari Schwartz worked in the Obama White House and was one of the first people whose job it was to get America interested in privacy. Before that, he was an executive at the Center for Democracy and Technology, CDT. He has plenty of I told you so's to offer. It was hard for him to hide his sarcasm when I asked whether any of these issues we face today were predictable or preventable. There was something in 2016 um, where I think it was one of the FTC commissioners that's still there said, who could have imagined 10 years ago that we would be in the situation now where privacy would be where it's at? And I had given testimony literally 10 years before that. <laughs> In front of the, I could have the same committee, in front of the exact same committee, saying <laughs> we need a privacy law. It's only going to get worse, you know. Uh, so I felt like maybe I wasn't heard so well in the early 2000s. Ari's version of the original sin revolves around a mistaken notion that the internet was a small neighborhood and everyone would just sort of do the right thing. Let me go back further. So I mean, to me, you could see problems even from the beginning of the internet that people thought could be handled through codes of conduct and through technology, right? I mean, the first spam message was sent in 1978 uh, before there even was an internet, <laughs> someone trying to sell computers. And they thought that it was totally crazy. And uh, like, who, who would think to even do that? You know, so they just kind of handled it by codes of conduct and like, you know, telling people, oh, you can't really do that here. And then and that was enough. And I think that that was sort of the attitude. I mean, if you talk to some of the people that created the internet originally on the security side, right? Um, and I think this goes for privacy too. The feeling was, well, we, you know, they're doing this for the researcher. This is just a research uh, network, right? Um, we trust each other and we'll know who does something wrong. Um, and when it got so much bigger and, and kind of started to spiral and get bigger and bigger, um, you know, there's some realization that um, codes of conduct and technology weren't going to be able to handle it. So they were naive about spam, but that was only the beginning. There was also this idea that, hey, everyone who has something to say now has a platform to say it. No more gatekeepers in the publishing world. Who cares about who owns the printing press? Everyone owns a printing press. Everyone can publish a blog. Isn't that great? CDT, right before I got there, they had um, met with their board and kind of put together this set of kind of set of first principles that CDT would believe in. And one of those is that everyone should be a publisher. I think that that's true. You know, and, and that's one of the things that made the internet great was that everyone could be a publisher. But I also think that there should have been some recognition. And, and now we see it with the, with the social media that uh, maybe there needs to be more clear rules about what it means to be a publisher, even if everyone can do it. And I don't think we did a good enough job of, of working out what those rules should be and what you do if people violate those rules. Would it be fair to say maybe people were naive back then? See, I would go all the way back to the 70s and say that, they, yeah, they been were naive all the way through. And I, I would admit that I was naive in 1996 about, about that piece about the publishers, um, about publishers, everyone being a publisher and believe, really believing in that. And I still believe in free expression online, but... Um, I do think that you still can hold the platforms accountable and have free expression. This question is to what that means in terms of holding the platforms accountable and what it means for individuals. The rules should be to individuals and how you hold the individuals accountable on those platforms. But I think we didn't uh, go into quite enough detail about what that should be or 
have enough, quite enough imagination about where we could get to um, at this point. This idea of a failure of imagination is an expression I like quite a bit. First popularized by the 9-11 Commission, but it applies to a lot of problems, like free speech online. It's already limited by various existing laws. It's a crime to threaten people, and if you knowingly lie about someone, you can get sued. And those libertarian tendencies so strong in Silicon Valley made a lot of people feel pretty sure existing limits were enough. There was no need to make more laws to get in the way of this speech revolution. This was, indeed, a failure of imagination around misinformation. Misleading people about the coronavirus isn't really a crime, but it is dangerous and so undesirable that as a society, we have to do better than just passively see what happens. The U.S. hasn't done very well at dealing with these Internet age issues, however. JoLynn Dillinger, in Part 1, talked about Congress being distracted by other emergencies. But Ari offers a slightly different insight into why we've avoided dealing head-on with many of these issues through the years. It's just so much easier to blame somebody else for the problem. As you listen to Ari explain this, keep in mind the built-in cultural differences between the East Coast and the West Coast in America, between old media and new software, between New York and Seattle. When I was preparing for this interview, I read back on some stuff about the Patriot Act and the encryption wars. And the fear in privacy issues 20 years ago was big brother, right? Would technology be used to attack or interfere with democracy through government surveillance? The thing we're worried about today seems so far afield from that. It's quite a leap. I mean, not that we're not worried about government surveillance anymore, but today we're really worried about publishers and misinformation, right? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, there was a lot less concern about um, how bad misinformation would get and about certainly about other countries trying to push in misinformation. But there was concern about um, the accountability of the platforms for personal privacy at that time. You know, 20 years ago, I remember it, it was right when the Patriot Act stuff was happening. I was I gave a talk in, and this happened to me a few times, where I've given a talk on the East Coast. And everyone on the East Coast is talking about Silicon Valley and the responsibility in Silicon Valley. And this is so this is while the Patriot Act's happening. I'm just giving a talk to the Army, right, at the, one of the Army's conferences. And I'm giving a talk about government surveillance and government issues and the concerns about around the Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the people stands up and says, yeah, but what about those people on the, you know, what about the browsers? How much information can the browsers collect about what we do? And it seems like they're pulling all this information together. There's no accountability for them. We know we have strict laws on government, but where's the laws on the companies, right? And then I flew across the country to give a talk at HP and spoke there. And, and the folks in HP, the first question I got was, yeah, you're saying all this stuff about what Silicon Valley needs to do and what we need to do to improve privacy and how we need to you know, start to build better practices into what we do. We know that. I know what we collect. But what about the census, right? What about all this information that they want to collect from us? You know, it's, it's almost as if at that time, I mean, it's 20 years ago, they were kind of very focused on internally in what they were doing and not seeing all of the the whole picture. I felt like I had a little bit better view in that because I, I was doing both government and the private sector and could be equally uh, yelled at by both sides at least. Um, but I think it was still hard to get the message across to people. Like if you continue to going down this road and only care about what the other 
what government's doing or only caring about what industry is doing and not caring about the other side, we're going to end up in a pretty bad place. That bad place. Well, Ari thinks the information bubbles we created a decade ago, a problem we talked a lot about but didn't really do anything about, are you hearing a theme from me? Well, these information bubbles led directly to the misinformation problem we have today. There had been a lot written maybe 10 years ago, more on kind of the bubbles that we were all creating for ourselves through the filters that had been created on through social media and through and the, and the uh, search engines that we were only seeing content that we cared about. And I thought that was really relevant and important at the time. Um, and a lot of people seem to sort of shrug it off as saying, well, but that's what people want. And I think that that has sort of led us down to that misinformation road more than I thought, it, even more than I thought it would at the time. When Donald Trump was deplatformed by Facebook and Twitter after the 2020 election, there was an outcry to end Section 230 protections for web companies. Without getting into that grand debate, at least for now, the argument shows just how ill-equipped our system seems to be to deal with these emerging big tech issues. Section 230 is 25 years old. The Privacy Act is almost 50 years old. The rules aren't keeping up. Have you ever played a board game with your family and you don't take the time to read all the rules at the beginning of the game? What happens? Chaos. Lots of chaos. Usually hurt feelings. Also, cheaters often win. That's not a bad metaphor for the internet today. I think there's been an attitude for a long time that if it's legal, that it's okay. And instead of uh, looking at what's moral and ethical. Um, and some some folks obviously don't fall in that camp, but I think a lot of folks did that. And so there, there was a lot of uh, kind of, are you saying I can't do that or that I shouldn't do that? And if it's I shouldn't, then they sometimes they would go ahead and do it anyways if it was what they needed to do to make money. That attitude led a lot of people down the wrong path. So maybe the real original sin of the internet is that we've never really figured out a process to fix it, or at least to make course corrections. It didn't come with a repair manual, and we've not really taken the time to write one. Many people have tried, already tried, but on the list of high-priority problems, hackers get the attention. Hackers are sexy. Hackers create emergencies. Privacy and civil rights, well, these issues just have a hard time competing. I know you were having some of these conversations even when you were working at the Obama White House. What kind of reception did you get when you raised issues like this? I guess it depends on what issue and where I was raising it. I think most of the time there was a desire to try and come up with the right solutions, but figure out also how to go about doing it. I mean, I ended up working a lot more on security than on privacy in the government. And one of the reasons for that is because it was just so much easier to get things done on security, right? When it comes to privacy, there's a lot of gray. No one's going to agree on who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to that government versus the private sector too. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm collecting this information, but I'm also giving you this service, right? When it comes to security, everyone who agrees who the bad guy is, it's just how to go about getting them and stopping them from doing it. That's the problem, right? So um, so there's a, it was a lot easier to make progress on policy in security than it is on privacy. That's not to say that we've gotten a lot further in, in the security area, but it is easier to make policy there. And so we're left with some really big problems, a situation I feel comfortable saying no one is happy with. Where do we begin? What's the first thing that, that I mean, if you were in the Biden administration, what, what, what would you try to tackle first? 
I do think that the disinformation problem is is really a tough one and, and one that I think we need to get a handle on because I do think it's eating away at our uh, at the society and the ability to govern and trying to develop means to identify factual information without censoring information is really a challenge at hand. And I think we need to have broader discussions about doing that and, and about having civil discussions as well uh, across the board on all different issues. Um, so I think that those are probably two major issues right now. I still think getting a privacy law in a commercial privacy law in place would be a good idea. Um, there's a lot more support for it now, especially because Europe has done it and California is doing it. And um, so I think having a federal privacy law, I still would put up there and look very high on the list as well. Is there something that you would tell Ari Schwartz working at the Obama White House, like a piece of advice you would have that you know now that you could have given to yourself back then? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, seeing what some of the um, what the Russians have done in terms of disinformation, um, where that has led just the complete falsehoods and, and, the, and the ability to continue to push falsehoods that has come from fake speech from like robots, et cetera, and what that has done. You know, because we, we used to say the way to combat bad speech is with more speech, right? Figuring that the best ideas win. But if more speech is being pushed upon people with robots, right? It's very hard for the people that are actually trying to create real speech to win the day. I don't think I understood that at the time. If speech is being pushed by robots, it's very hard for people trying to create real speech to win the day. That concept turns a lot of free speech thinking on its head. And this is another theme I keep hearing from my guests. We've tried so hard to carry over laws and concepts from the past into the digital age to extend these imperfect metaphors. And sometimes they just don't fit. You won't find a bigger free speech advocate than Tim Sparapani. He spent the first part of his career at the ACLU. Then he went to go work for an outfit he calls the biggest free speech experiment in history, Facebook. Like Ari, he now finds himself saying things he never expected to say. Is there an original sin of the way that the internet works? And if you believe that, what might it be? It's a fabulous question. I think we trusted too much in the notion that good speech would drown out really terrible speech. Um, I was raised uh, as somebody, as a committed civil libertarian with the notion um, of the marches in Skokie, Illinois uh, emblazoned in my brain which was to say that um, as a country, we decided to make the choice to let awful, hateful, shabby speech uh, go forward and um, not in any way crimp um, people's First Amendment rights with the understanding that enough people's common decency uh, would be brought to bear and the weight of public opinion would be such that awful, hateful, um, violent speech would be completely cast out from the public square or would be um, so publicly um, derided 
that we would make sure that everyone understood how sick, wrong, confused, um, erroneous, terrible that speech was. When we set up Section 230, that was the understanding is that that line would hold. The common decency and, frankly, the common sense of the American public would be enough. Turns out that's maybe not necessarily the case, that the ability for people to do deceptive things, for people to manipulate the public, uh, for people to end up in echo chambers is so strong that we may need another mechanism um, over and above transparency. Um, And it hurts me to say that. Uh, I, I want to believe that there's common sense out there, but it turns out that common sense isn't so common. There's that idea again, the notion that things would somehow fix themselves, that the market would correct itself. That's a driving force behind so much tech development. But if you believe in the concept of an original sin, that there are flaws baked in, fundamentally part of the digital age, then you believe the internet isn't going to fix itself. I'm not saying Tim believes that, by the way. He bristles at the notion, for example, that social media is fatally flawed. I was just reading some of the things I've seen you say recently, and I heard you describe Facebook as perhaps the greatest experiment in free speech in human history. Do we now need to announce, oh, maybe this is a failed experiment? Uh, failed? No. Um, look, we have, not to sing Facebook's praises, but social media in general, I mean, anytime you can connect one in three people on the planet effectively for free, Right, we can drive down the cost of communication to zero when it used to cost, you know, many dollars just to make a, a, a one minute phone call internationally. Right. Now we have the ability to communicate for free. This isn't a failure of communication and social media itself shouldn't be castigated or destroyed. It's not a societal ill, but what didn't get put in place were guardrails. And there have not been enough people who have been willing to say flatly that uh, the companies who are are the dominant companies have, have failed. They speak freely. Facebook speaks freely about having community standards, right? And having them be a safer place. That was the original understanding is that Facebook was was a much safer place than MySpace uh, and Friendster, which you know, sort of predated it uh, in terms of its popularity. And in fact, Facebook was a safer culture relative to those two um, because it was a, a real name culture and the others were pseudonymous or anonymous. And so they truly were the Wild West and anything um, that could be said was said. But what I think has failed is Facebook's leadership, right? And the desire to eke ever more profit out of an institution as opposed to looking in a short, sort of a short-term way um, is a failure rather than having a long-term view of, of the health of the company they've created. Right then, as we're talking, Tim becomes a bit more animated. His time at Facebook was short. He only lasted from 2009 to 2011. Facebook's initial public offering was in 2012, and it didn't go well at first. Tim and I have spoken before, and I know he has very strong views about Facebook's decision to let itself be led by the insatiable hunger of Wall Street for growth. And that led to perfecting the algorithms which seem to drive all our lives today, to turning social media into an addictive tool 
into making the entire internet, maybe all knowledge today, into, as I like to say, a high school popularity contest. Virality um, has been elevated over all other goods on not only Facebook, but every other social media site out there. And that's led to really like short-term thinking, like nanoseconds of short-term thinking. I think the other failure is that in having a publicly traded company, Facebook and other companies like it are thinking, um, how do I please investors? And investors, unfortunately, have a time horizon. You know, it used to be years, now it's quarters, um, every quarterly earnings update. In some cases, the traders are trading also in in high frequency and thinking of fractions of, of seconds as well. And so having a publicly traded company has not been a good thing for Facebook. It's probably not a good thing for most social media entities, because instead of thinking about the long term of the community they've created and the community standards that they've established, they're thinking about how do we drive up shareholder value? And that is, I think, inconsistent with having community standards that they should have and could have. This issue of virality, I take personally because I feel like a failure to make this about traditional media companies. Journalism is a popularity contest now. I mean, everything is a popularity contest now. And I thought we all learned in high school that popularity contests are the road to perdition. But here we are. I feel like we're all back in high school fighting for popularity. I agree with you. Ad-driven media, ad-driven social media, uh, you know, the fact that this is our monetization scheme that we've landed on is uh, made this in some ways for many people a zero-sum game, right? Where every entity that is seeking ad dollars is uh, at war with everyone else who might be seeking the same ad dollars. And it leads not only in social media, but across all media, in my perspective, to really poor thinking, right? And it leads to promoting um, the things that will incite, be egregious, be popular at the cost of anything else. Was Facebook's leadership naive or was there another failure of imagination? Was that social media's original sin? So I actually think the sin is much more grievous from Facebook's leadership in the last decade. Conscious choices were clearly made to elevate virality at all other costs, right? That was not the case when I was there. Um, it has certainly become so um, many years after my departure. And I think that's that's clear based on the algorithmic um, operation we see, right? And, and Facebook has admitted as much many times. YouTube has admitted as much many times. Uh, all these other social media have followed suit and maybe taken it to the nth power, right? The ones that are receiving even less public scrutiny. And so, with years of warnings from people like Tim and Ari and JoLynn and Richard, Facebook and other tech companies failed to prepare for the moment we now find ourselves in. In terms of you know playing to the public market, I I, I won't condemn capitalism outright. I will condemn the the leadership again for thinking on quarter on quarter profit you know increases rather than doing the sort of R&D 
expenditure, the capital expenditure that businesses that expect to be around for a long time do, right? They build for the future. They, they spend money now, even when it's expensive to have more capacity later to build their widgets, right? To manufacture, to have the next scientific breakthrough. Facebook had the last 17 years to spend money on building capacity to control the fact that people have less common sense than we expect, right? Or that virality will take hold or that deep fakes will be easily produced or that foreign governments with malicious you know, intent will use some of the American public's gullibility against it, right? To create division and, and so rancor. Facebook failed, not because they're a publicly traded company, but because they thought only in short term thinking instead of long-term investment. They've only built community standards processes to review content at scale begrudgingly and over time. Tim is as disappointed as anyone, but like Jolyn, he's not really interested in saying all this was inevitable or couldn't have been stopped. Look, we should get all the benefits of technology, right? We should have um, customized things. We should have personalized things. We should have individualized things. That's part of the promise of the data age. It is one of the great advantages of the data age. The problem again is that we failed as a society to put in guardrails around this. We have not said what should be out of bounds. We should not put any behaviors in the penalty box. We've not beyond that built systems that require when mistakes are made and they will be made and are made daily uh, for these companies to have human beings um, to respond to inquiries from the public to make things right. And more importantly, finally, we haven't put in place redress systems for companies that have harmed individuals. And there again, there will be harm. There is harm, are forced to make it right. And it seems to me that you can't have an unshackled system uh, and expect it to turn out well. Turns out that isn't a good idea. It's the same conversation we were having about um, speech on the internet. And you have to as a society, in my opinion, understand and predict the bad things that are going to happen. These things are not, you know, impossible to understand. They're cyclical. Uh, we, we see this with every new technology. We can anticipate the problems because we have seen them with the dawn of every new technology. It doesn't mean we should stop the march of technology, quite the opposite. It means that we need to be, you know, getting smarter as a species and as a society where we can embrace technology and do the things that we need to do to make it better so that we get all the good and a lot less of the ill from any new technology. I don't think it's that hard. We've just failed. It's really not that hard? I'm not sure whether I should be inspired or depressed by that thought. I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised when Tim, like John Perry Barlow, the co-founder of EFF, who I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, compared the internet to fire. But this time, the comparison wasn't quite so favorable. Yeah, I am not in the camp of, you know, throwing off the shackles. I'm a civil libertarian, not a libertarian. Um, And so I want there to be more speech. I want there to be more action. I want there to be more freedom in society for people to make the choices they want to make. But with that freedom comes responsibilities. And it comes from responsibilities from companies as well. And we can't pretend it it shouldn't or it doesn't. Since humanity understood how to use fire 
or that wheels make things easier to move. There have been good and bad things about every technology. Every new invention is a double-edged sword. Um, and because we have seen um, so many technological revolutions come, we should understand and take precautionary action for, at the outset with every new technology. Uh, it seems to me that we are well into the artificial intelligence um, moment, but it hasn't you know, sprung fully into our society. There's a chance now to do this in advance of all the things that could go wrong with AI. I just use it as an example. And I think we can retrofit most of uh, the technologies. I think we could put in place guardrails around social media. I think we could take things off the table. I think we could require companies who have done ill or, or had made mistakes to make it better. It's really not that hard. There it is again. It's really not that hard. Tim had me thinking that maybe the original sin is simply a lack of will, of focus, or too much deference to the idea that innovation is an all-or-nothing game, the most important, unimpeachable value and goal of American society. I've been to so many press conferences where someone warned about a rule or a tax or a person getting in the way of innovation as if that's a line which should never be crossed or even discussed. Believe me, there have been plenty of moments in my life when my computer crashes, my cell phone runs out of battery power, the printer jams, the GPS reboots right as I enter downtown. Many moments when I've thought, you can have your innovation. Innovation is a bit of a Wizard of Oz of our time, hiding behind a curtain not to be challenged. Well, I think it's time we collectively assembled our courage and our heart and our brains pulled back the curtain and started asking innovation some hard questions. We need to check our math because a lot of the answers we have right now are obviously wrong. We weren't always so passive in the face of new technologies. I use this example pretty often. In the 1970s, marketers were experimenting with subliminal advertising on television. You've probably heard of it. Flash an ad on a screen for a fraction of a second so quickly our conscious brains don't notice, but... Perhaps it makes an impression on our subconscious. Public reaction was swift. The Federal Communications Commission got involved, and quickly, broadcasters rejected the entire concept. That kind of social response seems out of reach today, Bill Woodcock warned me. Remember, we met Bill in part one. I think the problem is that we are so far beyond that. We have lost so much ground since then that society having a response to something is almost not a thing anymore. How does society have a response to something when each individual believes that they're part of a society, yet each individual is wrong about what the extent of that society is, and each individual is surrounded by as many bots as they are people, and the people that they are surrounded with are not the ones that they have chosen or even the ones that are just geographically proximate to them. They're the ones that the bots have selected in order to create an echo chamber that will produce some specific result. When you're in that situation, it's really hard to recover from it. You can't use intermediated conversation to achieve societal consensus anymore at that point because intermediated conversation through the mechanisms that we have is not 
conversation. It's not conversation between humans anymore. I like to think we can jumpstart that human conversation right now. Is the original sin of the internet the shift to surveillance as the business model? The devil's bargain with Big Brother to keep the dot-com bubble parties going? Sloppy use of the word free and business transactions that leave people completely unaware of the bargains they've struck? Or is it the lack of willingness for someone to be the adult in the room to stand up and say, this thing that you're doing with the tool we've made is awful, and we're not going to be a party to that. Me, I find myself thinking about that word free a lot. I feel persuaded that free has a lot to do with the root cause of our digital age disasters. But let me try to explain it in a slightly different way. In the insurance business, there's a weird concept called reverse competition. Without boring you with an insurance conversation, suffice to say that in reverse competition, there is a three-way transaction occurring where the incentives work backwards. And because it's an indirect transaction, sellers fight to push up the price for the buyer rather than down. Kind of like reverse capitalism. I fear something like that has happened with technology. In most cases today, we don't pay for the products we use, not directly anyway. As a result, these companies are not beholden to us. In fact, all the incentives are to push up the price we pay, and there is always a price. And so, all the innovation has been to find more and more ways to monetize people, to track them, to manipulate them, to spy on them. There is none of the accountability that comes with free markets where companies must treat customers, people, well, and provide good services at good prices or face creative destruction from better companies. All the incentives are backwards. Almost all business models involve doing things that surprise people. In fact, they count on surprise. That's an original sin, a design flaw. And now, we have yet to show the social will to fix this problem, just like we've yet to show the will to guarantee safe drinking water to all Americans, or to repair crumbling bridges, or really clean our air. So that's what I think, but I certainly don't have the last word. If you like this topic, have something important to say about it, hate what I've said about it, well, we're doing a series of blog posts on the same original sin conversation, sponsored by Duke, in my In Conversation series at my website, bobsullivan.net. Yes, I get the irony of using a podcast and a blog to talk about technology's ills, but I never said technology is all bad. I just think that sometimes it bullies us humans, and from time to time we need to stand up to it. How? That'll be a topic of future podcasts, coming soon. Thanks to Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy and the Keenan Institute for Ethics, for funding this podcast. Thanks also to assistant producer Spencer Reeves, research assistant Elliot Kelly, to audio engineer Julio Gonzalez, and to Duke professors Ken Rogerson and David Hoffman, who inspired and encouraged this project.